Dave Wardson invites us to come with him to Gethsemane to observe the Savior's greatest moment of vulnerability. Can we honestly express our fear and negative emotions to God? Does obedience deny the reality of physical, emotional, and spiritual struggle? Let's listen for some answers as we open our Bibles to Mark chapter 15, verses 32 to 42, for the Battle of Olivet Hill. I don't feel like it. Have you ever stopped to consider how broad a range that that little phrase will cover? I don't feel like doing my homework. I don't feel like making my bed. Mom, I don't feel like eating all of my spinach. I don't feel like going back to school. I don't feel like having my quiet time. I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like going back to work. Probably in the English language, a little phrase, I don't feel, covers more ground than just about anything else. And it's an airtight one. I mean, if you tell someone you have an appointment or if you feel sick, it just doesn't work very well. But if you tell someone, I really just don't feel like it. You know, a friend calls you up, hey, would you like to go out? No, I don't really, I, I really don't feel like it. That covers it. Tell somebody, well, you know, I had other plans or something. They go, why don't you just change your plans? But use the phrase, I don't feel like it. That takes care of it. Because positively, we're told again and again and again and again, feeling good, feeling good. The goal and drive of our life, feeling good, we're doing good, we're contented, we feel pleasure, everything's going good. And I believe that one of the greatest attacks that Satan is making against the church of Jesus Christ is using that little phrase, I just don't feel like it. Because we are in a day where if your feelings are feeling a certain way, then it's hypocrisy. It is foolishness to deny those feelings. We want to talk today as we come through the life of Christ about the, probably the most intense battle that was ever, ever fought. The most intense conflict that ever took place on this planet. You know, we have the Battle of Bunker Hill. We, we have the Battle of the Bulge. But this battle, the Battle of Olivet Hill was the most intense struggle that ever took place. You know what? A lot of us have never really taken time to think about the fact that Jesus did not feel like going to Calvary. I want that to sink in very deeply. Did you ever stop and contemplate about the reality that Jesus did not feel like going to Calvary? But he did. In other words, Jesus did something which was anathema to the American culture. If I would have asked Jesus, Jesus, do you feel like going through this experience? No, I don't. Jesus, do you think this will be a, an emotionally fulfilling experience? He would say, no, I don't. Well, then why did you do it? Now, as we talk like that, one person in the audience responds to me and says, I know that. I'm working on controlling those feelings. What I do... What I do is when those feelings, which I know are very much opposed to the will of God. Do you realize we're going to study a passage today and I want to try to get you to really feel the tension. Do you realize we're going to talk about a passage where the Son of God's feelings were at odds with the will of his Father. His feelings were at odds 
with the will of his father. Yet he doesn't disobey. Now, how is he able to do that? Well, one group of believers pretends that they don't have any feelings. One group of believers pretends and gives the external picture, the external example that, man, they've got the joy, joy, joy down in their heart. Man, we're going to go to the cross. Man, we're going to go before Pilate. We're going to bear a mighty testimony for God. And we're going to win the sacrifice of sins on the cross of Calvary. It's going to be a great victory. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I grew up with a lot of believers like that. He's got the joy. Victory. What do you do with the Garden of Gethsemane, though? You see, what a lot of strong leaders will tell you is, see, you don't want to let your feelings show. The way you lead people, the way I lead this family is to be strong. It's to be a strong example. Don't cry. Don't let anybody know you get really discouraged. Don't let anybody know you're despondent. Don't let anybody know you have feelings that are opposed to the heart and to the mind of God. A lot of leaders lead like that, but not the Son of God. Now, there's another kind of a person here, and this is a very dominant stress in our society. What you're supposed to do is just let all your feelings hang out. In other words, you express your feelings, and then a lot of people go on and say, you express your feelings, and then you just do them. You just do it. That's the best way to handle your feelings. Just express them and then do it. And that's going to get you in a lot of trouble. The amazing example of the Son of God is that here he is 2,000 years later and he, he presents to us a reality which is the only way that we as brothers and sisters in Christ are going to go on and be obedient to the will of the Father. And Jesus chooses not the route of pretending of denying negative feelings. But on the other hand, he does not choose the route of just living out his negative feelings. Instead, we turn to Mark chapter 14. We want to look at the Battle of Olivet Hill, the Garden of Gethsemane, a passage which is famous in the life of Christ, and yet so many believers do not think carefully about the experience that Jesus had in the Garden. Mark chapter 14. We want to begin with verse 32. It says, They went to a place called Gethsemane, the wine press. And Jesus said to his disciples, very appropriate, because the idea of a wine press is used again and again in the Old Testament as a symbol of the wrath of God. God will say that his great Messiah will tread out the grapes on the wine press of God's wrath. And so, as soon as we mention Gethsemane, we begin to think about the symbols of the Old Testament of the wrath of God pouring out its vengeance upon the sin and the disobedience of man. The Lord Jesus comes to Gethsemane, the winepress, and he says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John. That was his inner group of friends, his most intimate brothers in relationship with God, Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. In that English translation, he began to be deeply distressed and troubled as trying to wrap up all the agony and all the horror and all the despondency when you feel like, I felt like I couldn't go another step. Have you ever been so grieved that you felt you were going to die? 
you put together what the synoptics share here, they'll express he had a sorrow unto death. He was greatly distressed. He was greatly troubled. And he has these three friends, and he wants them to share in this struggle with him. He says in verse 34, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. Now what's happening? The Son of God is different from many martyrs. You can go back in the book of Maccabees, which is a Jewish document that describes how thousands of Jews were killed during the Maccabean revolts of 167 to 164 B.C. And I can read to you glowing accounts of martyrs that were, that were butchered, that were killed, and they did so with great, great joy. You can read in Fox's Book of Martyrs, when I was a kid in high school, we began every world history class by reading another martyrdom account. We went right through Fox's Book of Martyrs. It was a great way to begin a Western civilization class. And we would read these glowing testimonies of the death for Christ of these great martyrs of the faith. Socrates, if you haven't read it, you're probably going to have to read it, kids. Sometime in school, you're going to have to read Socrates' account before he takes the poison and he dies. He's glib. He's almost flippant. He shares with his friends. His friends are all crying, but not Socrates. When you come to the death of Christ, there's probably no other individual on the earth that's ever faced death with more horror, with more distress, with more hesitation than Jesus Christ. And a lot of us forget that. Why? I think a lot of people, when we read this passage, you see, we are so used to a Jesus that's like Jesus of Nazareth in the, in the Hollywood presentation where, like I've shared with you in the past, he never blinks his eyes. He kind of floats through existence during the different miracles. It's like his feet never hit planet Earth. But that's not the Jesus of the Scripture. And as we study the Battle of Olivet Hill, we are in the midst of one of the greatest mysteries of all the revelation of Scripture, and that is that Jesus was a man. He was also God. But when a man knows for sure he's going to die, when you know that in so many hours you are going to die, there is a horror in that. Now there's a horror for us because we don't know what's coming. Because it's a new experience. You don't die several times in your life and get used to it. You don't get to die and practice it. And we're all afraid of new experiences. So all of us have a horror when we talk about death. If I, if I told you you're going to die at 3 o'clock this afternoon for sure, you would be frightened. The great thing is that none of us know that. Even if we're going to be electrocuted, we could say, well, maybe the thing won't work. Jesus is the only man that ever lived that knew for sure, absolutely for sure, that at such an hour he would die. Now, as I contemplate death, as I contemplate death, I have a great confidence, a great hope. I don't believe that when I die that I'll see Satan. I don't believe when I die that I will go to hell. I don't believe when I die that I will wrestle with the evil one. In fact, I believe I will do just the opposite. I believe to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But Jesus knew 
Jesus knew that death would mean the ultimate, final, fully conclusive battle with the adversary. Jesus knew that the tempter that came to him in the wilderness, in the Garden of Gethsemane, had come again. And this was going to be like two jousting giants. This would be the final conflict. And Jesus knew that death would mean a face-to-face -face meeting with the Prince of Darkness, for sure. Thirdly, Jesus knew that death would be the separation from his Father. Do you know one of the worst griefs of death, one of the biggest horrors, is separation. And Daddy says to me, Dave, I don't mind dying. My kids need me. My wife needs me. I'm going to miss them. Jesus knew that his death would be a mysterious separation that none of us will ever understand. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane knew that he was facing an experience where he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all the universe would become dark because the Father in heaven would have to turn upon the Son of heaven because that Son had become sin for us. Great mystery in that. Jesus knew that agony of separation was coming. And finally, he also knew that all of his friends were going to cop out. If I were to ask you, what are your biggest disappointments in life? Some of your biggest disappointments in life are saying goodbye, but also my friends let me down. In fact, I would be willing to say that almost all of you at some time in the Christian life will be tempted to leave the fellowship of God, to leave fellowship with the believers because your friends let you down. Jesus asked his disciples, the, 11 minus, the 12 minus Judas, so 11 disciples, to just stay awake and just pray with him for one hour. You're in the intensive care waiting room. I come into the intensive care waiting room and you say, Dave, my beloved one is in surgery. Let's have prayer together. So we sit down. I have a word of prayer for about a minute. It says, Dear Lord, help them in surgery. And just like that, while I'm praying, instead of getting to the in Jesus' name, amen, I fall right asleep. I mean, I just go out like a light. The whole time your loved one's in intensive care, your pastor sits there in a chair, sacking it out. Wouldn't you love that? I'm sure you would say, well, boy, that's really great. can really count on them. Good friend. Really cares. You ever stop and think that's exactly what the disciples of Christ did? Now, you talk about a bad news situation. There's probably some of you that says, David, I'm afraid because, man, there's so many bad news things that can happen. Nothing could be as bad as what I just described to you. The battle that was raging in Olivet Hill. And Jesus did not sing, I've got the joy, joy, joy down in my heart. Now Hebrews does say, because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. 
But one of the great problems with many believers is that they jump too quickly to the joy without working through the battle of Gethsemane. And it causes them to be very artificial people. It causes them to be people that just use a strong will instead of using the grace of God in order to achieve victory. Now, how did the Son of God handle the emotion when you feel like you're going to die? In fact, you not only feel it, you know you're going to die. You're horrified. You're afraid. You don't want to go through the experience. All your friends are letting you down. What did the Son of God do? He prayed. See, I think one of the greatest things the Lord wants to teach us is that the battle is not fought externally. It's fought internally. Frank Rogers, one of our elder statesmen in our church family, I believe that that's one of the lessons in his later years that the Lord has implanted on Frank. We've got to pray. You need to listen to those believers that have walked with the Lord for many years. This is what the Garden of Gethsemane is about. It's about the agony and the struggle of prayer. Spiritual warfare is won in the garden, not before Pilate. And that's what Mark is trying to teach us. Now, how is it won? We all glibly say the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer that we say is our prayer. Remember that I've taught you that over and over again. It's your prayer. It's a disciple's prayer. It's the model prayer. If you want to listen to the Lord's Prayer, this is one of the Lord's Prayers. John 17 is another one of the Lord's Prayers. And let's look very carefully at how Jesus prayed. It's incredible. And I want to first go through and share with you how I would probably pray and how you would probably pray. If we gathered together as a group of believers, knowing that one of our loved ones was going to face this kind of a challenge, this is the way we would have begun the prayer. Look what it says. Going a little bit further, verse 35, he fell to the ground and he prayed. We probably wouldn't do that. It's way too unsophisticated. Jesus went a few steps from his three intimate disciples and he just fell on his face down on his knees before the Lord. If I were to ask you, how many of you in this, in this past year have done that? Probably very few of us have. And that's because we don't feel the intensity of the struggle. Some of you that have gone through some very intense times probably have done that. Some of you that have just faced unbelievable horrors, you probably walked into your room all by yourself at one time or another and just collapsed on your knees and you just poured out your heart to God. Now, some of you that are into an intellectual relationship with God, you don't understand what it means for someone to just fall on their face before God and weep and cry. And one of the things we want to believe is that our relationship with God is intense and it's real. And when you're facing tremendous challenges, there's nothing wrong with, with just pouring yourself out before God. And Jesus was expressing his humility, his submission to the Father as he falls in his face before his Father. And look at how he prays. He begins, my daddy, Abba, verse 36. Abba, the Aramaic, comes across to us like real holy language. That literally means my daddy. That's very important. My daddy, my father. We're going to talk about being very honest with God about your emotions, about your feelings. 
You'll never be able to do that until you begin to relate to God as your daddy. Why? Because we have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. We can address God as my daddy. I have yet to hear a liberal preacher pray at a football game and say, my daddy, take care of the, the young men as they play ball today. Keep them safe, and I pray that the rest will be able to see what they're doing. And so forth and so forth. I've never yet heard a liberal clergyman pray like that. I haven't heard many evangelical clergymen praying like that. Usually you hear in formal circles, our dear Heavenly Father, and then we read a prayer. You'll never learn how to pray if you're praying like that. Because you've got to learn to begin, my daddy. In fact, even as much as I've taught you yet, my flesh has a little hesitancy to say that. It's so familiar. It's so close. But Jesus taught us to pray like he prayed, and it begins with my daddy. Now, something that's very important, he goes on from that address to say this, and this is an incredible statement. Look what he says. He says, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Now, let's think about that. First of all, he begins with theology. How many of you agree with the theology, everything is possible with God? How many of you believe that? God is omnipotent. Do you believe God is omnipotent? Okay, we all believe that God's omnipotent. So Jesus begins with an airtight argument. God, everything is possible for you. Okay? Good theology. Second of all, because everything is possible for you, take this cup from me. Is that a good request? Is it a possible request? Now that's tough. There's a lot of mystery in this passage. You know what Jesus says? You know, if you go away from the faith, a lot of you are going to go away from the faith because you get hooked on the horns that Jesus is expressing in the prayer of the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus begins with, God is omnipotent. If God is omnipotent, then it means that he can do whatever he wants to do. And that means that he can obliterate death, he can obliterate grieving, he can obliterate sorrow, he can obliterate disease, he can obliterate sinners, he can wipe out the pilots, and we can all live happily ever after. If everything is possible for God, then the cup, the cup of death, the cup of self-sacrifice, the cup of suffering, it can be done away with. Can it? You see, the biggest question for Christianity that I've shared with you in the past, the biggest difficulty for Christianity is either God is all-loving or he's all-powerful. If God is all-powerful, then he must not be all-loving because if he is all-powerful and he allows death and he allows sacrifice like that and he allows evil to do what it does, then he must not be all-loving. So what Rabbi Kushner says in his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, what he says is that God is not all-powerful. God is all-loving, but he's weak. You see, he's not all-powerful. He is all-loving. He doesn't want death to take place. He doesn't want suffering, doesn't want sin, but he can't help it because there's another powerful ruler in the universe, and he can't quite be strong enough to stop all that stuff. So, the dilemma is solved that God is not omnipotent, but he is all-loving. 
And that seems to be the choice. The Bible responds with a great mystery and says God is all-powerful. God is all-loving. And God's plan is much bigger and much deeper and much more magnificent than anything we could ever understand. And so Jesus prays, let this cup pass from me. And God the Father said, no. Now some of you get mad when the Heavenly Father doesn't do what you feel that he should do. How many of you have ever gotten angry with the Father because you prayed, you felt, Lord, I feel this is right, this is the way it ought to be, and God says, no, it's not going to be that way. And you go, well, fooey on God. He doesn't do what I want him to do. So I'm just going to give up on him. Did you ever stop and think about the fact that God the Father did not do what the Son of God humanly felt in the Garden of Gethsemane that he should do? Now, a lot of theologians try to get around it and say, well, Jesus really isn't praying like this. I think that he is. I think in his humanity, I think it's only normal for a human being that knows he's going to die to know the tremendous agony, to know the separation of family relationship, of separation from his friend. I think it's only normal to have emotions that scream, no, I don't want to go through it. And Jesus had a relationship with his father where he told his father how he felt. You know what's wrong with a lot of our relationships? Let me just begin with our human relationships first of all. Dad, this is how I feel. This is what I think. This is what's really going inside, on inside your son. And I love you. And we can even disagree a little bit. You know what? You'll never be close to somebody until you do that. You see, a whole lot of you in your marriages, you only say what you think the other person wants you to say. You're always keeping things cool. And you're never honest. There's never any integrity. You see, if I fake my dad out and what I do for a long time, because it's just too hard a hassle, I just don't say anything. And what I'm saying is I don't really need you. You just go do your own thing. It's too much of a hassle. And I bet you there's a bunch of sons that are doing that. It's too much of a hassle. Relationship always is a hassle because you have to be honest. You have to tell the truth. Because there is no relationship until there's truth. What about our relationship with God? You know how most of us would have prayed this prayer? You are omnipotent, Father. And I am going to go to the cross because I love the world just like you love the world. And I want to save the world just like you want to save the world. And from the foundation of the world, we have been talking about this together. And I want you to forgive their sins. And it's just such a pleasure. It's such a thrill. I'm just really excited about being able to be obedient to your will and being able to go through this experience together and just thank you, Jesus. That's the way a lot of us pray. And all of what I just said is relatively true in the, in the will of Jesus Christ, but not as an emotion. And Jesus had a real relationship with his heavenly daddy. And he already knew that his heavenly daddy was in tune with every thought, every feeling, every decision. He knew his father was totally omniscient as well as omnipotent. And he didn't have any fake at all with his father. He just laid out, Father, as a human being, this is what I'm experiencing. If some of you stood up and said, Lord, this is where I am today. This is what's going on in my life. This is what I really feel. 
and you started really just laying it out, it would be incredible what would happen. Because prayer would become what it is. It would be talking with God, sharing our heart with God. That's one of the commitments you need to make. Just talk to God about what's really going on inside. And it takes a lot of work to do that. It's hard to do that. It's hard to get rid of the glib phrases. It's hard to get rid of the canned tape recorder kind of speech. It's hard to even get your thoughts together to be able to express your emotions because it takes a lot of work. In fact, that's why poets are such good gifts to us and why writers are such good gifts because they have a knack of putting putting ideas that are invisible into visible, tangible, hearing, reading form. But we all need to learn to do that. We need to learn to be honest and express what's genuinely going on inside. And young people will not leave Christianity when they get to be about 18 or 19 years old saying, ah, just a bunch of, just a bunch of culture. Young people won't do that when they see dads and moms that get up and just are honest in their prayer and they wrestle with God about how they feel because there's a real genuine relationship there. You say, Dave, that's, that's mind-boggling. I can't believe, you mean, I need to tell God how I really feel? Sure. Read the majority of the Psalms are just like that. That's why a lot of people have a lot of trouble with the Psalms because it looks like a lot of bad theology in the Psalms. It really looks like a lot of bad theology. David will say, God, you don't want me to die because when I die, I'm going to be like a dog. And dogs can't praise you. Now, is that good theology? How many of you believe when you die, you become like a dog? The Bible says, no, your spirit ascends to the heaven. It says to be added from the body is to be present with the Lord. But you know what? As you live your human life, there's going to be time when you feel like if you die, you're going to be like a dog. And David had the kind of genuineness in his relationship with God. He would just tell God, I feel like a dog. He didn't pretend. He believed there was enough strength in the relationship that he could tell God what was genuinely going on in his life. I believe that's what Jesus Christ is doing. Jesus Christ says to his father, Father, this is what's happening in my life in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he didn't do it dispassionately either. Man, he was so worked up. I mean, his sweat was pouring off him like great drops of blood. Saying, Father, I don't want to go to the cross. You see, your Christian life and my Christian life isn't going to get off the ground until we start to develop a daddy-son relationship that's like that. And the Son of God's Spirit is present in our life to make us so that we can do that. So some of you really get into that. You say, okay, Dave, honest with my emotions. Honest about my feelings. To be honest with you, that's what a lot of really good counseling is about. A counselor tries to create an atmosphere where you're honest for once. Any good counselor you go to, if they're really good, one of their primary concerns is honesty. They're trying to get you to be truthful, to stop lying. Forget the games, forget the con, forget what they think. Just say the truth, what you really are experiencing inside. But do you stop there as a believer? You just tell God how you feel. Jesus said, Heavenly Father, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't feel like it, so I'm not going. I'm not going to go because it's wrong to deny your feelings. I don't feel like going to the cross. I'm not going to go. 
So you're omnipotent, come up with another plan. If Jesus would have done that, he would have been the devil. You see, we not only have to in our prayer to be honest with God, but remember where Jesus started out? Jesus started out on his knees as a son. And he had a relationship with his daddy that he could be totally honest with his daddy, tell him exactly how he felt. But Jesus said the next phrase, thy will be done. Not my will. Thy will, not my will. Thy will be done. And that's tough. In fact, I think that's probably why Jesus prayed three times. It tells us in the text that he prayed in agony. He went back and his disciples are still sleeping. He says, wake up! Wake up! You need to watch and pray. We are in a tremendous struggle. We are in a tremendous battle. Look what it says here. It says that he gets up. Then in verse 37, he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. He said, Simon, Peter, you're asleep. Why are you asleep? Could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. In verse 39, once more he went away and he prayed. The same thing again. And when he came back, he again found them asleep because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning a third time, he said, are you still sleeping and resting? Three times Jesus came back and every single time they're sleeping. Now, why do you think Jesus had to pray the same words? How many of you in your prayers have ever just said the same thing over and over again? Now, do you do that because God is hard of hearing? No. You see, Jesus in his humanity knew what it was to really wrestle with God. A lot of you have asked me, what about this passage in the Old Testament about Jacob wrestling with God, holding on to God? See, very few of us know. You see, the problem with a lot of our relationship with God, we don't know how close God really wants to get to us. See, we like to keep God distant, the great and mighty one, high and exalted, and he is that. But the God of the Bible, the scary part is that he wants to get so close. He wants to enter in right into the fabric of our personality. And he wants to wrestle with us. And I think the reason that Jesus prayed three times is that it's hard to overcome the emotions and the horrors of separation and death and all that he was going to face. You see, someone that says to you, oh, here's a Bible verse. This will take care of it. You see, I don't think that a, uh, someone that comes up to Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane and he puts his arm around him and says, Jesus, God's planned it all. It's all going to be all right. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Let's buck up. You know, let's smile. It's God's plan. That's what believers say. Or it's the sovereign plan of God. What can you do about it? Quit your crying. What are you whimpering about? See, all of those approaches just don't understand the agony and the depth and, and also the, the unbelievable humanity of the Garden of Gethsemane. Why did the Son of God have to go and pray the same thing three times? Because it's hard. It's hard to express how you feel. It's hard to wrestle with those feelings and get them under control with your will and make a decision to do what you don't feel like doing at all. It's hard to do that. But that's what the Son of God did. 
You see, the Bible teaches that you can be very honest about your emotions. You can even tell God about emotions that totally disagree with him because he already knows them anyway. But you know, the Bible doesn't say to let your feelings be the king. And that's the tough one for Dave Wurzel. You see, the real struggles of life come down to who's going to rule here? Who am I going to obey? Am I going to live for feeling good? Am I going to live for, I don't feel like it, so that means I don't have to do it? Or do I ask myself, Heavenly Daddy, you are the king, and I need to stay on my knees before you, and I can be very honest about how I feel. We have a very genuine relationship, and I can work through those feelings, but eventually I have to decide, and I find in the counseling process, this is often after you work through and get a lot of honesty, a lot of sharing, a lot of genuine expression of feeling, a lot of times it comes to moments of time where someone has to decide who's going to be the king, who's going to rule. And I've had some people just get up in anger. They walk right out and I don't want to, I don't want. I know what God wants me to do. I don't want to do it. I don't like it. You know what they're saying? They're saying, I believe that God doesn't want the best for me. You see, what the Son of God realized was this is where the joy and the hope comes in because Hebrews says because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. You see, all of you have to decide whether you believe that God is good. Even if it means to go to the cross, even if you don't understand, even if there seems to be a great conflict between his omnipotence and his love. And the Son of God in his humanity, you know the verse, maybe you can understand the verse, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. One thing I would pray is even in my own Christian life, I often cop and I say, well, Jesus, you don't really understand. You were this combination of God and man. You don't really wrestle the way I do. You don't have the struggles with the flesh that I do. You don't have the problems that I do. And Jesus wrapped his arm around me and says, David, you don't know the beginning of the struggle. You have no, you've only walked one insy-bitsy step into Gethsemane. I know what your struggle is. I face the worst that Satan can throw at me. And I did not use my divinity to win the victory. I won the victory as an Adamite, as a son of man. That's what this passage is about. It's not a son of God that suddenly says, in my divinity, I now win the victory. It's in his humanity, down on his knees, praying three times, being emotional the way all of us are. And his human will said, thy will, not my will. Think of the contrast. In the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Eden, a serpent came and says, you're not going to really die. Go ahead and eat the fruit. Just eat the little fruit. You won't die. God the Father said, you can eat of all the fruit, all the fruit in the garden, you can eat it. But don't eat this one fruit. The serpent comes and says, Go ahead and eat that one fruit. It won't kill you. Now, is that a hard temptation? Is that really that tough? You can eat all the fruit, just don't eat this one. And the first Adam 
when he could have eaten the whole grocery store, chooses to eat the one little part of it the father said don't eat. The temptation of the next garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, goes like this. Son, I want you to eat the fruit of death. You are going to die. And that is my will. And this son has to decide, will he obey? And the second Adam chooses to be obedient even to the point of death because he's devoted to his father. And that's the Adam that begins our new race in Christ. The pathway of obedience. The Son of God said, Thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. We're going to have to learn to be honest about our feelings, to develop a real integrity in our relationship with God. But we're going to have to realize that we're in a pathway of discipleship where the Heavenly Father calls us to learn obedience by going through the experiences of suffering many times when we don't understand. So Jesus falls apart in the Garden of Gethsemane. But as we close this passage, he rises and he faces in verse, verse 41. It says, returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting enough? The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes the betrayer. For the rest of the crucifixion account, we're going to have not a whimpering, not a horrified, not a terrified Savior. We're going to find a king in regal majesty that faces all that Satan can throw at him in the power and the might of the Son of God. And he's going to give his life for us as we will learn in the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion. But Jesus in his humanity... The reason he could face Pilate, the reason he could face Caiaphas, the reason he could face the cross is because of the aloneness and the integrity and the honesty and the submission of Gethsemane. And Jesus is calling all of us to follow that pathway, to learn obedience through the things that we suffer. Feeling good? It's a totally different call. It's not a call to denial. It's not a call to ignore your feelings, to deny them. It's a call to be very open, probably more open than you can even imagine. But it's also a call to make a firm decision with your will. Who do you believe has the meaningful life? Who do you believe is the ultimate good in the universe? Who do you believe can bring us through to great salvation? You see, to really understand you this experience, you need to go back before you can see the resurrection, before you see his ascension to heaven. You need to see him as a man facing all of that experience of death to enter into the real source of the strength and the power that he had. Satan's going to attack our flank. 
more subtle than adultery, more subtle than drug addiction, more subtle than, than greed, is the temptation. I don't feel like it. I don't feel like it. So I don't do it. I disobey because I don't feel like obeying. What we need to learn is to go to Gethsemane, to learn to wrestle with God. Let me apply it practically. In almost every one of the sin problems that we have, it relates to feeling good. We all battle the battle of the bulge. You know why I eat too many cookies? Because as I see a plate of cookies, I don't say, Lord, thank you so much for one. It's good to have one. I start to put one down. It feels so good. Man, it just feels good. Boy, did it feel good. That's why I do it. I'll be honest with you. I feel good. And I make a choice to start to hurt my temple. Because I want to feel good. I want to exercise. You know what, Americans, you want to exercise because we want to help our temple to feel good? So I get on a bike, and a great thing about stationary bikes is you turn on the TV and you can watch TV. You know what I found out? It's agony to ride a stationary bike watching TV. The advertisements go on forever. You know why? Because you're used to watching TV in comfort and ease, feeling good. When you're riding a stationary bike, it ruins watching TV because you're in agony. You pedal for five minutes and your legs start to hurt. I say, Lord, you're not supposed to have aching legs when you're watching TV. So I stop. Because we got to feel good. You'll never get in shape feeling good. You want to get in shape? You're not going to feel good. You're going to feel lousy. It's going to hurt. You want to grow in your spiritual life? What Mary just went through doesn't feel good. Someone that comes flying into an intensive care ward and they're bubbling with the joy of Jesus, I feel like hitting them over the head with a sledgehammer. In fact, now after pastoring and you're not young anymore, when I see a believer bopping in like that, I say, oh Lord, what problems do we have here? What are they covering up? Man, this person is so flaky. It's going to drive us nuts. Would they please be quiet? It's not the joy of the Lord. It's not integrity. It doesn't feel good. But you know what? As you look back over all the years, God is good. We do learn obedience through the things we suffer. God doesn't delight in death. He doesn't delight in sickness. It's not his heart. But he's chosen for there to be a cross because it brings about the expression of his love and enables forgiveness to come. And until that forgiveness wins over the entire world, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be hard times. There's going to be Gethsemanes in the Christian life. What is it going to be? Feeling good? Or following your Savior into the garden? Honest with your emotions. Expressing them to God but staying on your knees long enough to learn to bow and say, not my will, Daddy, but your will.